Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us today. Last week, you might have noticed when President Joe Biden started selling his $2 trillion American jobs plan in a speech he delivered in Pittsburgh. Now, that proposal aims to address a legacy of underinvestment in our nation's roads, bridges, and pipes. It would also create a new and competitive model for things like 5G and electric vehicles. And it looks at the crucial role of our human infrastructure, our workforce, to ensure that we can collectively and sustainably carry out this vision. And while there's no denying that the proposal offers a deeply transformational glimpse at our nation's future, what many noticed during Biden's speech last week was that he really didn't even say the word infrastructure much at all. Instead, what he was focusing on was this idea that the role of equity and equality is inextricably tied to our nation's legacy of infrastructural shortcomings. That's a really intersectional approach to governance, and it's the kind of thing that flies in the face of decades of strategies that tried to reduce issues down for the sake of keeping them siloed or really easy in American voters' minds. Here to talk with me more about Biden's big new plan for infrastructure and what it could mean for all of us in the months ahead is Gina Smilek. She is a Federal Reserve and economy reporter at The New York Times, and she's been writing about Biden's $2 trillion American jobs plan and how it's spurring a legislative debate over what infrastructure really means. Gina, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me on. So as I said in the open, this is more than an infrastructure plan. It's really a blueprint for sweeping social and economic change. Uh, Start out by talking about the basics of this plan before we get into the specifics. Right. So this plan sort of dedicates, It's a, well, A, I think the most important thing to say is it's a huge plan, right? It's $2 trillion. You can do a lot with $2 trillion. And it does a lot. Um, it focuses on some of the, the things that I think people traditionally think of as infrastructure. You know, there is money in there to modernize existing transit. Money goes to Amtrak. Some money goes to ports and waterways and to airports things like that. Mm-hmm. But then there's also quite a lot of money in the in the bill for other things that I think are not traditionally thought of maybe as infrastructure. Um, among those are building, preserving, and retrofitting affordable housing, um, upgrading and building new public schools, you know, uh, manufacturing supply chains, um, research into semiconductor uh, manufacturing. And, you know, so, so a real sort of mixture of workforce development um, traditional sort of, you know, roads and bridges sort of infrastructure, and certainly major investments in the energy's clean energy grid and the electric vehicle sort of transportation network, everything from manufacturing to charging stations. Yeah. And so it's, it's really a sort of this broad sweeping proposal that touches a lot of different buckets. So, so one of the things that strikes me as kind of interesting about the timing of this proposal uh, and I want to talk about that a little before we get back to the proposal itself and the specifics, mm-hmm. is the fact that the Obama administration also launched a huge infrastructure investment plan as part of the recovery plan uh, from the Great Recession when, when they took office in 2009. Um, and that plan was was widely panned. Uh, I, I remember 
the mocking that was uh, was leveled at shovel ready, which was the the term they came up with to describe the kinds of projects that they wanted to invest in. And one of the lessons of politics often is uh, don't repeat the the mistakes of your predecessors. Right? If it didn't work before, don't don't try it again. This is more than a doubling down on the idea of infrastructure. I mean, this is. This is a, a, a much bigger commitment than the Obama administration ever even, uh, even even floated, and it takes us in a really different direction. Talk about why Joe Biden thinks this will be more successful than what uh, what the president he served as vice president uh, did uh, not more than a, uh, a decade ago. So I'm going to put on my economics reporter hat and give you a slightly nerdy answer here, but I think <laughs> it might be <laughs> I think it might be the right one. Okay. Um, and and I think the answer here is just that the world has changed over the past decade. You know, I think we have to kind of go back in history and think about what was happening when Obama sort of ushered in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and all of these in- big infrastructure investments of that era. And what was happening was, you know, we had just gone through this really bad recession. But what we hadn't gone through was the absolutely lethargic recovery from that recession. You know, we had experienced the shock, but not the hangover. Mm. Um, And so I think that people maybe weren't so attuned to just how bad and how sort of slow and grinding these kinds of things could be. We also just weren't talking about inequality in the same way. You know, 2009 was before Tomas Piketty published his sort of, you know, manifest, manifest on uh, inequality in the modern era. I think, you know, people were talking about it, certainly like I think of Joe Stieglitz at Columbia, but mm-hmm. I don't think it was part of the public conversation in the same way that it is now. And certainly racial equity, I think, you know, had been a, a topic that got a lot of attention and certainly that communities of color were really servicing in the 90s, but had kind of, you know, fallen a little bit to the side as a, a topic of our everyday economic discourse when it came to, you know, things like opportunity and how we succeed as a nation and what our growth potential is. You know, we weren't talking about macroeconomics from an equity perspective back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. And I think if you fast forward to 2021, we really are. I think there's been this new recognition that you cannot have a quickly growing economy if you are not bringing people along. You know, the, the these sorts of broad-based investments um, that allow everybody to succeed, which I think is really what the Biden administration is choosing to define as infrastructure, um, those kinds of in- investments are, you know, potentially necessary to the future of our nation's productive capacity. And mm-hmm. I think that that's just a conversation that we've really started to have over the last decade. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adding, and adding to that, you know, growth has been slower, interest rates are lower, and it costs less for the government to borrow debt. So there's definitely a different conversation about, you know, doing some of these things if you can't pay for them exactly today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Biden laid out the bare bones for this plan during a speech in Pittsburgh, and mm-hmm. that's the city that uh, that you're from. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little about Uh, what he said and how it struck you as someone from Pittsburgh, uh, which is a city that has a lot of the same issues that we do here in Detroit. Yeah, I think one thing that was really interesting about that speech is it's so heavily focused on creating a system that brings everybody along, you know, creating growth that doesn't leave anybody behind. And as 
you're obviously conscious of, you know, being from Detroit, I think a lot of what we saw in the post-industrial era in, in communities like Pittsburgh is that there were some folks who did really well. You know, Pittsburgh is now very much an Edson Med city. It mm-hmm. hates being classed as a former steel town <laughs> because it's pretty vibrant. It's got a cool downtown, you know, bars, restaurants. Carnegie Mellon, Pitt, you know, all the all these great things going for it. But there are still communities in the outlying areas that are feeling the aftershock of sort of the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs and and the the death of the steel industry or at least the transformation of the steel industry. And so I think what he was really focused on was creating a system where, you know, the old jobs are going to change. Like history moves on technologies adjust and it's not always the case that we're going to have the same jobs we had 30 years ago but i think he's he's really laying out a vision in which it's the government's role to make sure that people are able to reskill and sort of participate in a changing economy instead of getting left behind a changing economy yeah yeah uh, I'm talking with Gina Smilek. She is a Federal Reserve and economy reporter at the New York Times. She's been writing about President Biden's $2 trillion American jobs plan and how it's spurring a legislative debate over what infrastructure, what that word really means in modern American politics. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think of Biden's really big sweeping infrastructure plan. Uh, would you be open to that kind of big government approach uh, to fixing the nation's uh, infrastructure. Uh, Also, give us a call and tell us what you make of the intersectional approach of this plan, the idea that there is an equity issue at the center of uh, the underinvestment that we've seen in infrastructure over a really long time in this country, and that the way forward, the equitable way forward, is about reinvesting in infrastructure and reinvesting in the human capital that's necessary to make that infrastructure work. It's a really different approach than we've seen from uh, presidents in the past, and uh, it it really promises to send us in a very different direction uh, on this issue. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313- 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Also, give us a call and tell us what you think are examples here in Southeast Michigan of places where the infrastructure issue does intersect with the equity issue. I can come up with a couple just off the top of uh, of my head, uh, one of them is uh, the the plan to pave over I three seventy five, the freeway that uh, that destroyed Black Bottom when it was uh, when it was um, when it was built, uh, tore tore through a, a black neighborhood. Um, uh, we got a lot of freeways in in Detroit that did the same thing. One of the things they're talking about doing here is kind of revisiting and reexamining. Those kinds of uh, those kinds of projects uh, through the lens uh, of equity. I know that there are lots of others here in Southeast Michigan uh, that fit that same category. So if you can think of them, uh, give us a call and tell us what you think about those. Uh, tell us what you would do uh, to change those things. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can go to Facebook or Twitter, and uh, uh, we'll try to get you into the conversation that way. Uh, Before we get to listeners, uh, Gina, I want to talk about your colleague, Jim Tankersley, who has described this intersectional approach 
uh, to infrastructure. Um, uh, talk about the, the 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 kind of specific things that they're that they're looking at doing um, that 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 marry this infrastructure issue. Uh, to equity, I know I saw in the in the paper last week the story about the the freeway that cuts through a, a neighborhood in New Orleans, for instance, uh, the, similar to the one I was talking about here in Detroit. Uh, give us some other examples of how they're thinking of this. Right, I think that's a really good example of what they are thinking of doing. I think another one that probably you know will have some amount of. Uh, poignant to your listeners is that they're talking about, you know, getting rid of the lead pipe water infrastructure, replacing that, making mm-hmm. sure that water quality is improved, mm-hmm. um, which would obviously disproportionately, or, you know, more proportionately benefit communities of color who have disproportionately suffered from that problem. Um, other things that they're thinking of doing are, you know, regional innovation hubs, things that really focus on improving, um, lab, uh, college and university lab research facilities, and about half of the money for that program in particular will be dedicated specifically to historically black colleges and universities. Um, A lot of focus on HBCUs actually throughout the entire legislation or uh, their entire description of their legislation. Um, Money for workforce development and apprenticeships. Um, So I guess really, I I think the sort of overall gist of it is trying to create jobs that would, you know, help folks who have been left behind as the economy has evolved um, and that would sort of lay, uh, even the playing field in places where we have historically used public policy to actually disadvantage communities of color um, or other other communities who have, who have been left behind in the evolving economy. Yeah. Uh, we've got a Twitter question I want to uh, put to you, Gina. Michael asks whether you can comment on why the infrastructure projects can't come from state taxes instead of the federal government. He says he's talked to some conservative economic uh, thinkers who are arguing that state taxes should cover infrastructure instead of federal. Uh, what do you think of that? You know, I think that's an interesting question. I think that's clearly not the approach they're choosing to take. And I think one thing that you'll often hear when you talk to economists about doing things at a federal versus a state level is that if you do it at a state level, you are at risk of reinforcing existing inequities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this this conversation particularly comes up when you talk about minimum wage. So I'm mm-hmm. going to use that as an example just because I think it's really salient. Um, but so, for example, like a lot of a lot of the northern and coastal states have state mandated higher federal minimum wages. Mm-hmm. A lot of the southern states do not. And you get into this situation where the lower income communities in the south consistently have much lower income than the lower income communities in the north. And part of that it traces back to these minimum wage conversations. And so what you what you can really have is a system where if you're leaving it up to the states, you don't have sort of a very even playing field between states as a result. Um, some people might see that as a feature and not a bug. Nevertheless, I think from a federal perspective and probably if, if you ask the administration from their perspective, those kinds of inequalities are not something that they probably would want to would want to perpetuate. Yeah. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Gina Smilek of The New York Times. And we are going to get to more of your comments about this issue. Frank and Canton, Karen and Ferndale, Amber and Hamtramck. We'll hear from you next. Uh, if you want to join them on the phones, 
313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Talking with Gina Smilek of the New York Times about President Biden's $2 trillion American jobs plan, uh, an initiative to really rethink the idea of how we think about infrastructure uh, in this country and really double down on the idea that we need to rebuild it, not just rebuild the physical part of our infrastructure, but also invest in human capital, the human capital that has suffered so much underinvestment uh, over a long period of time. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 if you want to participate in the conversation. Uh, We especially want to hear from folks uh, about the idea of infrastructure here in southeast Michigan and the idea of infrastructure and equity. Can you think of examples where uh, infrastructure issues raise equity issues uh, in our community? Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work them in as well. Let's go to Frank in Canton. Frank, welcome to the show. Good morning. My question for Gina is the program, which I agree with, is, lar- is financed through government debt largely, and government debt is the Federal Reserve buying government bonds, which is essentially creating money. And I'm not opposed to that, but how long can that go on? Is there any risk in that? I'd appreciate your comments on that. Great question, Frank. Thanks very much, uh, Gina. Are we digging a hole that we won't uh, easily get out of here from a financial perspective? I'm a Federal Reserve reporter, so I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think two things that are worth noting here. One is that the Biden administration has been clear that this will at least be partly paid for by increased taxes. Um, and they specifically detailed a plan to raise corporate taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, we remain to be seen how this all shakes out, but that that is worth noting. When it comes to the government debt, it's important to know that government debt issuance is separate from the Fed's quantitative easing program, which is the bond buying program you just referenced. Mm-hmm. So basically what happens is the government goes out and issues debt. The, there are plenty of willing borrowers the world over for that debt. You know, we haven't seen any real signal that people are unwilling to buy U.S. Treasury bonds yet, although economists do worry that there may be some limit to that. We have seen the Fed stepping in as a big buyer in recent the recent year, really. Um, but that is partially just because that is how the Fed tries to kind of keep money chugging around the financial system. Um, and there's no real reason, I think, at this stage to believe that if the Fed step back and stop buying issuance, Certainly, interest rates would move up, but I think we've seen enough demand from the private sector and from the global public sector um, that there's there's every reason to believe somebody would be there to buy that debt. Um, so it seems like, I think if you talk to most economists, they'll tell you we, we are nowhere near the limits of our debt issuing and borrowing capacity yet, um, but it is a thing to keep in, in mind for the future. One thing that um, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, will often say is the federal debt is sustainable 
currently, but on an unsustainable path. So basically, it works as is. We can probably issue more debt as is, but we don't want to keep doing deficit spending indefinitely because we're not going to be able to keep this up forever. Eventually, interest rate costs on the interest costs on that debt is going to be pretty, you know, a lot to bear. Sure. There's also the question of why you issued debt. There's bad debt, bad reasons to issue debt, and there are good reasons to issue debt. And I would think that infrastructure, investment in physical infrastructure, investment in human capital, both of which, of course, uh, lend themselves to higher GDP and uh, greater output, uh, are, are more favorable reasons to, to issue that kind of debt. I think you just zeroed in on specifically the biggest debate that's going to happen in the economics community over this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you've definitely seen some people, and I think Larry Summers at Harvard is a good example, coming out and saying, infrastructure is a good investment. Go for it. Right. <laughs> like yeah. This is a good way. If you're going to spend on debt, this is the way to do it. And then I think certainly when Jim and I were working on our story about what infrastructure means this week, we were talking to some economists who you know, made a case that you might want to be a little bit more careful about cost benefit with some of this stuff because these may not be super, you know, big payoff projects. And that may change the calculus Mm. around how much you want to, you know, debt spend on them. And so I think, you know, it's a huge package with a lot of different provisions. And I think economists are still coming through it. But I think this is going to be the zeitgeist for the next month or two. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Again, Frank, thanks uh, a lot for for the call and the really great question. Let's go to Karen in Ferndale. Karen, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, thanks for taking the call. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering uh, the specifics of uh, how Amazon's uh, new fulfillment center here at the state fairgrounds is going to impact our roads, the traffic congestion, um, and what thought has been given into how Amazon is responsible for this apparently going to be a huge increase in traffic and um uh, what effect is that going to have, and how how is that going to be uh, sustained and or uh, supported hmm. uh, through this package or any uh, package? I mean, we we have huge problems with our roads as it is. We do, um, and on you know, let's not talk about how the auto industry and the trucks and the hauling has impacted that. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a great question, uh, Karen, and I think it gets to a it gets to a larger question, which is the corporate role. I think in helping to maintain infrastructure, uh, certainly in building infrastructure when when they have big developments. Uh, uh, Gina, for just for your reference, uh, Karen's talking about a pretty large Amazon distribution center that's being built uh, in a key intersection uh, here in in Metro Detroit. Uh, There's a lot of excitement about the idea of the jobs that it's going to bring and the fact that it's uh, putting a a pretty underused parcel to to, to greater use. But as Karen points out, you know, there are infrastructure questions that that have gone unaddressed and uh, no one has really brought up the idea of of a corporate role there. Uh, How does that how does that play out in the context of this uh, this massive uh, government infrastructure spending plan? You know, is there is there a connection uh, to corporate responsibility or 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 corporate help with this with this big issue? I think maybe one of the clearest connections 
um, that we're going to hear a lot about in the months ahead as, as this goes through Congress is just the fact that it includes a, a massive corporate tax hike. Um, so it would raise the corporate tax rate to 28% mm-hmm. as a pay for um, for the program. And I think that the, the interesting thing about that is they're also trying to prevent corporations from dodging taxes by locating elsewhere. Um, and so the, the way they're doing that is basically by saying if, you know, if, if you move somewhere that has a lower tax rate, you have, we're going to make you pay up to our 21%, like I think up to 21% um, to make that a less attractive maneuver. Um, and so I think that combination of better enforcement and higher taxes for corporations as a way to pay for this infrastructure investment is probably sort of the primary way that they're trying to, that the administration is trying to put some of the responsibility for improving the workforce, improving our, you know, physical infrastructure back onto these corporations, which, you know, obviously will also be beneficiaries of these programs. Mm, yeah. Uh, Karen, again, thanks for the call and the question. Let's go to Amber in Hamtramck. Amber, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. Um, yeah, so I was uh, touching back. I had uh, connected with this conversation when you had brought up Black Bottom and the highways that went through that area, mm-hmm. and they demolished successful black businesses that were sprouting up at the time. And I, um, I it also, um, I wanted to touch on the um, aspect that you were bringing up about you know, what is our definition of infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that had a ripple effect that um, resulted in laws being put on the books that actually banned the entire city of Detroit in participating in dance after 2 a.m. That's the activity of dancing mm-hmm. in any establishment after 2 a.m. And um, this sounds like an archaic law, something that was put on the books, and obviously it couldn't be enforced. But it is, selectively. I mean, now we're talking about times of a pandemic, so, you know, everybody's being forced out of establishments at 11 p.m. (laughs) But um, when we think about the entertainment sector and shutting things down at 2 a.m., when other cities around the globe are um, reaping in the benefits of a 24-hour economy, where does Detroit sit, um, you know, on the global on the global arena of, of that industry. So, so, so I guess, are, are you, are you advocating for, uh, no mandatory, you know, and it's not that they're mandatory closures, they're mandatory c- ceasing of the sale of liquor, really. Um, uh, I mean, are you advertising, are, are you advocating for a later, you know, a later, a later bar call. Uh, um, so that that actually is already going into effect for Michigan. We right. are now. Um, It'll be a four a.m. Right. Yes, yeah. correct. So we are we are going to be experimenting with that in the near future, which is a result of some of the work that's been been done in Detroit. We just in the past couple of years have elected a well, we didn't elect um, Mayor Duggan appointed a night mayor a night ambassador for mm-hmm. Detroit. Mm-hmm. He's worked with the mayor or the night mayor from Amsterdam. Um, and the idea was to start setting up test pilots and to remove this 2 a.m. dance law so that establishments could still operate. As you guys know, we have a big music industry full of producers. Yeah. And um, we want to open that up to consumers. That I think that's been a big problem of Detroit in mm. the entire entertainment infrastructure is that it's full of producers and not enough consumers. Hmm. 
Uh, Amber, I really appreciate the the, the call and the, and the context that uh, you added to the conversation uh, there. Uh, and it's an issue that I think we're going to hear a lot about in the coming weeks and months. Again, as you as you point out, uh, this four a.m. Uh, bar close is going to is going to change things quite a bit, uh, especially in Detroit. Let's go to Brother Ray in Midtown. Brother Ray, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, good morning. Uh, yeah, uh, my family. Uh, uh, was lived in Black Bottom, mm-hmm. and we, we successfully uh, with the Black Bottom group, we success, successfully filled out the application and applied for that area to be recognized as a historical area, mm-hmm. recognized by the State of Michigan History Society Historical Center. Uh, we recently got approved for that. I mean, it was a loan ballot from 2017. Uh, we recently also purchased the uh, the print of the market, which was four thousand dollars. But we're, we're, our our proposal is to if we if the government come revisiting black uh, these areas, we proposing to have a hit, uh, black Bible heritage center on that three seventy five hmm. uh, boulevard. Also, we proposing to have the three seventy five boulevard be named Black Bottom Boulevard. So we're just trying to figure out um, what is what is it in terms of uh, the Biden administration how they're looking at revisiting these. Uh, these uh, historical areas that was impacted by the interstate highway. Right. We're just, we're just really doing our research trying to find out yeah. you know, uh, what, what's the next step moving forward. Right. Uh, Brother Ray, I appreciate the call uh, and the question. Uh, Gina Smilek, we were talking just a little about uh, how this bill would, would interact with this issue of neighborhoods that were divided or in some cases absolutely destroyed by by highways. Uh, I, I don't know how far they've gotten on uh, in terms of talking that through, but there is the, that question of, okay, well, if you get rid of the highway and restore the neighborhood, then, then what else do you do? What do you do to kind of repair what was taken away? And I think what Brother Ray's talking about is, you know, the possibility of a cultural center or something. Is is the infrastructure bill likely to go that far with uh, this 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 issue, or is that going to be the kind of thing that we see later? I think you know. I think as you alluded to, we we kind of need to wait and see how they how they sort of flesh this out. But what we know from the fact sheet is that they plan on earmarking twenty billion dollars, basically, to reconnect these neighborhoods that mm-hmm. have been cut off. Um, that it sounds like you guys are describing exactly <laughs> exactly yeah. a perfect example of this. I think they also specifically referenced, you know, a community in Syracuse, New York, that had experienced something similar. Um, and so I think the the intent is certainly there, but I think we're going to have to wait a little bit to see what the more detailed proposal around that is like. But, yeah. you know, $20 billion obviously is no, no small amount of money. So right. it should be interesting to see what they do with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Brother Ray, thanks for the call. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, what's on your mind? Uh, hey, how are you? Uh, I'm hoping that there's money in the uh, infrastructure program for home repair and increasing home ownership uh, for low-income uh, people in uh, areas that have been devastated by police. Hmm. Uh, Gene, I, I know that's a, an issue that, that uh, you follow really closely is the home repair program that we have in uh, Detroit and how it, uh, how it works and how it sometimes doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Gina, is that the kind of thing that you might see in this bill, that kind of 
detailed. You know, you repair a street, you repair the sewers on the street. It doesn't get to the the blight that uh, that the underinvestment in infrastructure helped fuel uh, in the first place. And, and there are lots of places here in Detroit where you could uh, where you could see examples of that. So this is actually really interesting. There is quite a big pot of money earmarked specifically for building, preserving, and retrofitting affordable housing. It's Mm. about $200 billion, actually, a little bit more than that. And the idea is to, um, you know, either build or refurbish something like 2 million million, uh, affordable units. And then there's also actually, I think quite interestingly, for anybody who's interested in these issues, uh, a provision that's meant to cut exclusionary uh, zoning. That's a real focus of the legislation, or at least it, it plans to be according to the fact sheet. And so I think this is an area that they're clearly attuned to, and, and certainly one of the areas where some economists are questioning whether it really qualifies as infrastructure, while you know a lot of people who have been focused on these issues for a long time are really celebrating that it's in here. Yeah. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a really, I mean, it's a really important part of the equity picture too, right? Uh, the damage that was done um, to so many of these neighborhoods by underinvestment in infrastructure really kind of cries out for uh, a specific remedy now. Uh, I want to get one more question in here. Dave on Twitter says, transit advocates are pretty excited about the amount of transit funding in the Biden plan, but he notes that MDOT, which is our statewide uh, transit agency, gives 80% of its funding to roads and only 20% to transit, which isn't enough. Uh, Major improvements hinge on a four-county region of car drivers approving a property tax millage, and uh, he doesn't like that plan. Uh, talk about the transit part of the infrastructure plan and how much it relies on mass transit versus versus road funding and highways. So again, I think this is an area where we're going to need to see slightly more detailed um, <laughs> analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, the White House did put out a pretty good fact sheet, which I would I would point him toward, you know, as as a reference here. But basically, what it says is there's 85 billion dollars to modernize existing transit. So so that's basically improving bus fleets and investing in electric vehicles and things like that. 80 billion for Amtrak repairs and modernization. Um, and then there's quite a lot of money, you know, kind of sprinkled in different provisions that talk about, you know, improving improving sort of access and, and certainly shifting toward a more electric vehicle fleet. Um, and so I think it's kind of sprinkled throughout, but but certainly the, the idea that we would focus on public transit and not just roads, um, I think is definitely something that comes across in the provisions. Again, I think some of this we're going to have to wait and see more detail, but, but there, I think there's probably some reasons for him to help. Okay. Uh, Gina Smilek, Federal Reserve and Economy Reporter for the New York Times. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have a conversation about one of my favorite events every year here in Southeast Michigan, the Detroit Jazz Fest. Festival President Chris Collins is going to join us to talk about the 2021 lineup and special event that is coming up even before we get to Labor Day weekend. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.